question that's probably been pushing through or the sermon, uh, the service this morning a little bit is, is what is it that your heart pursues in life? What is it that you seek to give you meaning, uh, to give you a, an experience or a sense of worth from? What is it that you pour yourself into in order to feel a sense of acceptance what is it that you, that you have, that you do, that you can take comfort in, to find joy in? Our ambitions, what warms our hearts, are revealed a lot of the times, sometimes in our postcodes, where we buy a house, in our driveways, what kind of cars we put in there, in our wardrobes, sort of clothes uh, that we have. We, we have frames on our walls that we hang with pictures of academic achievement, of family, uh, we have all kinds of activities that we, that we pour money and time and, and resources into. What, what are the, the things around us that let us know what our, the ambitions, the pursuit of our hearts are? Often we seek to add as many credentials as we can to our, our LinkedIn accounts, uh, our profiles, um, and activities and experiences are often displayed on Instagram and TikTok and Twitter and Facebook and all these other things so that we can kind of have a boast, if you like, about who we are and what we are, what we pursue. Our ambitions reveal, in a way, what, what we worship, what we rejoice in, where we seek our joy and the question that we need to answer is, will these ambitions deliver the joy that our heart seeks to find and that our heart seeks to be secure in? Or will these things actually eventually at some point rob us of joy? Can we rejoice with a deep confidence in what we worship? In our section today, Paul calls his listeners to an intentional outworking, a, a public display uh, of the internal attitude and the approach of their hearts that comes from knowing Jesus. They, they, they have come to know Jesus, and, and how is that constantly being poured out in a public display? Not just on TikTok or Facebook, but in, in their everyday kind of minute-to-minute little moments, responses to life, stub my toe, got you know, caught at a red light again, stupid bike riders in their lycra, these kind of things. How, how is it getting expressed there? In a way, Paul says our lives are to be perpetual, visual acts of worship, expressing the joy that shapes them. That's what he's getting at with this word finally there um, in verse 1. It's it's. It's not Paul, this word is not Paul saying in conclusion, giving us the idea like some shady pastors and preachers do, it wouldn't be me, that they are coming to the end of their sermon when actually they have about eight or nine more points to make. We're only halfway through this letter of Philippians. But what Paul is saying here with this finally is whatever's going on in your life, whatever it is, whatever it is that you are undertaking or whatever it is that you are being overtaken by or in, the finality of that Given all that I have said so far, the outworking of that should be a public expression of rejoicing. Like finally, the outwork should be that we rejoice. Sadly and rather misleadingly, 
Christians are often more known as kind of wet blankets that put out fires than bellows that, that fan things into a blaze. How often are Christians associated with bitterness and not joy, with what frustrates us over what actually frees us? Paul is saying get intentional about rejoicing in the life that they have encountered in Christ. There should be a non-anxious presence, an unconquerable joy, even when it's impossible to be happy. It arises from an encounter and trust in Jesus. It flows out of uh, this indwelling adequacy to secure us in whatever comes our way. Paul has already in this letter encouraged his readers to a life expression of rejoicing, whether it's through his example or through their practice. In in chapter 1, in verses 18, Paul says he will rejoice that Christ is proclaimed. It doesn't matter how it's done, but he's going to rejoice that Jesus has been made much of. And he will rejoice in the knowledge that there's Philippians down there praying for him. And he will rejoice in, in the experience of the power of the Holy Spirit in his life, despite the fact that he's stuck and chained to a Roman guard in a prison. It's the spiritual realities, not the environmental ones, that warm Paul's heart, that shape his ambitions, what he expects in the future, that give him joy. And in chapter 2, verse 17, reflecting on the, on the selfless service of Timothy and Epaphroditus, and even reflecting on his time with the, with, with the Philippians, for Paul, this is cause for mutual joy as they, as they look at the exchange of service between the two, between the relationships that are on, ongoing there. Rejoicing is a word that conveys the expression of joy that comes from the stirring up of our affections, the realizing of our ambitions and the comfort in our acceptance. It's an act of worship. And now for the first time in his letter, Paul gives us a concrete object to rejoice in, the Lord. Here is where unspeakable joy is found that bursts forth in rejoicing. It is something that is independent of environment and circumstances. It has a a life of its own. Once again, we see that, that everything that Paul has to say here in this passage that we've read this morning is directed at believers. Not a not a word for unbelievers directly, but indirectly there is a lot to think about. This kind of unconquerable joy, this rejoicing is only available to those who have encountered the unconditional grace and forgiveness found in Christ that that Paul's been talking about through this letter. And that he is talking to Christians is captured in the use of the word there, Adelphoi, which is often translated brothers in the ESV. But it's a word that relates to all of those that he considers to be brothers and sisters in Christ. The best people outside of Christ can hope for is happiness, which is dependent on how our ambitions are being met in their circumstances, how our achievements and activities are being met. If they are wanting, if the environments and the circumstances are not meeting those desires, those ambitions, those expectations, then our happiness travels away with them. It should be noted that there is rejoicing in the Lord that Paul commands is not something that Christians drift to either. It is something that you work towards. God does not do it magically uh, for us, but he does it 
in us as we apply the truths and the realities that are ours in Jesus to our circumstances, our relationships, our environments. Most notably, Paul has already stated that you are citizens of heaven. Talked about that in, in chapter 127, that you are secured and you are served in the word of life until the day of Christ. That you have a future that is not tied to your circumstances, your relationships and your activities of this world, but one that is tied to knowing Jesus. And you have encountered comfort and unconditional love and the power and the presence of the Spirit, as Paul points out in chapter 2. Which is why Paul writes things like, to live is Christ, to die is gain. The new life of acceptance and peace with God is 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 encountered in this life, but it isn't ended or even interrupted with death. It's, it's, it's made permanent and all the more glorious. And it's also why Paul uh, says, if there's one thing that I will say on repeat, it's no trouble to me to keep reminding you about this activity of rejoicing in the Lord, having your heart warm with affection and ambition for knowing him more and more. And you need to be at work at this. You need to be active joy participators and partakers. You need to be active rejoicers. You need to be doing things like sharing and discussing what God is doing in your lives. You need to be just thinking about, reflecting, contemplating on where you've seen God's hand move in your life, where you encounter his grace and his glory. These are not things that you should just sweep past but things that you should stop and drink in and 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 rejoice in i read i read this today in my in my in my quiet time or or, or as we prayed i i felt this i was made silent by nature like sometimes when we look at nature like it's a lot of the reasons why my mate and i love to go out camping like so we just are made small by what we see in nature it's just like the amount of beauty in nature is is unnecessary really like it is you you can get by perfectly well without the incredible beauty that's out there but god puts it out there for us to enjoy and to point to his amazing um, majesty and creativeness because if we don't uh practice these kinds of rhythms and and these kind of things there are things out there that want to come and jump in and rob you of your joy if your ambitions and affections are not secured in jesus and these things like when you when you eat a nice piece of steak and you're like yeah jesus made cows Mm." it's not in my notes i don't know why i said that um (laughs) things can come along and replace that and so paul moves to warn the Philippians about joy thieves, about joy polluters, and they're infiltrating the church. And they've caused all kinds of damage and chaos down in Galatia by enslaving those who have been set free uh, in Christ to once again depend on rituals of the law for acceptance by God. These kind of joy thieves are all about external practice of duty and piety as evidence of acceptance by God, not merely about the internal transformation of the heart. They are known as the Judaizers. And Paul has some of the harshest language for those joy thieves, these kind of grace deniers, legalistic enslavers, these kind of religious peddlers of resume over uh, faith in the resurrection or 
duty over delight or customs that we like to add to Christ. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Notice the, the threefold repetition there. Look out, look out, look out. It's like a warning siren going off, kind of like a, a car horn warning a kid that they're just about to get hammered on the road. The force of Paul's language is lost in our English translations because it's kind of hard to translate just, just how forceful Paul wants to be here. But he doesn't mince his words. Anyone who adds something extra to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone is a dog. And not the kind of dog you have on your couch at home. The kind of dog you find scavenging in the bush, attacking sheep and ripping apart livestock and native animals, living off dead and decaying flesh. Dogs are characters who devour dead and decaying things and spread disease and corrupt doctrine in the church. Anyone who says acceptance by God comes through activity, through performance, and duty is an evildoer a person of distrustful character. Anyone who claims that heritage and piety as a means of salvation is a mutilator of the flesh. Something like the pagans do, who try to attract God's attention and approval through shallow acts of superficial markings rather than deep heart transformation. These joy thieves divert the pursuit of your heart away from inward transformation in the presence of Jesus through the Holy Spirit to external and inadequate enslaving activities of ancestry, of, of, of orthodoxy, of activities, of rituals and customs, of moralities as the place for joy, as the place for acceptance. We don't have Judaizers these days, but their descendants and their ideas still pop up with all kinds of self-help add-ons to salvation and they prey on the on the sincere love for god that people have and introduce obligation to god as a means for demonstrating love all kinds of things i you must speak in tongues you must dress a certain way you mustn't watch r-rated movies unless it's passion of the christ you you must perform replaces you will delight here, gratitude and joy for unconditional grace is turned into duty and activity to pay back grace. We start to build our own little resumes of what we claim to warrant approval and acceptance. Look at my tithe. Look at my morality. Look at all my activity. This kind of stuff is not noble. It's actually sinful when done to gain approval, not in response to approval already given because it robs us of the joy that is found in Jesus and it robs Jesus of his glory and what he is doing in us when we start to be all about what we can what we are doing for Jesus and not about what Jesus is doing in us we no longer glory in Jesus we no longer worship Jesus we have returned to being glory thieves which in turn robs us of the joy and the delight to be found there. The continuous pressure of this age is to make much of, find joy in and glory in anything other than Jesus. The great counterfeit provider on the table of culture at the moment is sexuality. 
but it could as easily be piety or orthodoxy or academic acumen. Close your eyes. Let your imagination drift for a moment. Daydream for a little bit. You will find the ambitions of your heart that you think or seek to get your joy out of. Are they things that warm your heart with affection for God and delight in Christ? Or are they things that drag you away? You are to be on alert for these joy polluters because, they, because of the danger they pose to your soul, to rob it of joy that is found in pursuing Jesus, knowing Jesus. Paul contrasts these thieves, these counterfeits of joy with the true source of joy, the indwelling spirit of God, whose presence cuts away the power and the practice and the pursuit of sin in our heart and replaces these ambitions with acts of worship, with ones that glory in Christ. It is the indwelling surgery of the Holy Spirit that transforms worship to delighting in God, to trusting in Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the source of joyful trust in the indwelling adequacy of Jesus. And it produces a life of worship. It produces a life of service to God that can never be stirred up by external rituals, but rather flows out of this internal transformation. This is what it is to glory in Christ, to live a life out of what he has done in you and what he is continuing to do in you. This word glory means to boast with great joy. Our lives become songs of praise, or as Paul has already put it, lights to a crooked and twisted generation about where joy, true joy can be found. Our lives boast not in what we are doing for God, but more about what God is doing in us. God is at work in us to apply his adequacy in our lives through our faith and dependency in Jesus. In order that the knowledge of God, the things that we have heard about God, this gospel of Jesus that comes to us, the promises and the claims that we have heard and received about Jesus, don't just stay as intellectual property, but are transformed out into living experiences, living realities and encounters. So Paul can declare of his own journey in this, of his own faith, that he has come to know the power of the resurrection, not through his resume and his achievements, but through his dependency and his weakness. And as he does, it is confirmed in him more and more that the life he lives in Christ is more dependable, more comforting, more joy-producing than, than one uh, that he could ever achieve in any of his own capacities. Like, like Paul has been through this journey himself. Think about this. I've been thinking about this this week. I asked the deacons this question, I think, on Tuesday. Do you think Paul could have written this letter, this letter that we've been going through in Philippians, uh, with, with all of the content that we have looked at so far in our journey through Philippians, do you think he could have just written this letter from the Damascus Road on the day of his conversion, or even a couple of days where he's sitting down on Straight Street? Do you think he could have written this letter then? Do you think he could have written this letter when the risen Lord Jesus appeared to Saul of Tarsus? That that event, that event there equipped Saul to rejoice in the Lord the way he describes in this letter. 
Like I think we make a lot of our conversion, don't we? We make a lot of Paul's conversion. But they are starting points. They are not... You, you have no idea how to rejoice in the Lord totally, fully, completely the day you were saved. And neither did Paul, I don't think. I don't think he could have written this letter, not with the confidence that he has in it. This letter is not a product of his intellectual stature and theological brilliance. It's not a letter based in his heritage and his pedigree, the right education and connections. This is not a letter of superior piety and religious service. Like Paul has all of those things the day he was converted. And perhaps, and I speculate, he thought to himself, of course God chose me. Who else has a resume like mine? And, and he's not even, and again, this is Mason speculating, um, not even thinking about these things arrogantly, but being humbled, realizing that he's had everything wrong up until this point, and now Jesus, resurrected Jesus stands before him, so he knows he's got to change everything about his life. He's humbled by that, and, and, and there's a, a sense of, right, I'm just going to get about dutiful obligation. After all, I have been called to do something. Who else can apply how Jesus fills up and completes all the longings and the promises of the Old Testament? Who else has a resume like Paul? I mean, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, the activity that I get about doing, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, like blameless, peerless. Not to mention the fact that he's also a tradie, to add to his resume. The best Pharisee of his generation. That is an undisputed fact about Paul. He is peerless. That is literally who he is. But he is not yet someone who knows, whose heart has been warmed with affection for God through lived out and applied experience of the renewing of his mind of this new mind that he has in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He's not yet someone who can say, as he does in chapter 2, for me to live is Christ, for me to die is gain. Not someone who he can say, as he does in chapter 4, and we'll get there eventually, I know what it is to be in need, I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do all things through him through Christ, who gives me strength. Paul's converted around AD 33, 36, there on the Damascus Road, and we find it in Acts 9, verses 1 to 19. Curiously, Luke, in his account of the early church, only dedicates a mere 16 verses to the first 14 years of Paul's life. This is a period of time known as the the, the, the unknown years, the secret years of the Apostle Paul, uh, where he had very few friends apart from Barnabas. And he had a modest ministry. The first three years are spent in the Arabian desert there. And a great deal of time was spent in his hometown of Tarsus where he worked as a tent maker and a trainee, if you like, apostle and evangelist. And it's not until Acts 12 where Paul moves clearly into the frame of church history and then Luke dedicates 16 chapters to the next 10 years of Paul's life. 
We get a glimpse into these unknown years of Paul from Galatians where he describes his conversion, uh, call and formation to proclaim the gospel of Christ to the Gentiles. And we get a glimpse that Paul has changed as he writes some of the deepest and most personal uh, autobiographical descriptions of his relationship with Jesus. I have been crucified with Christ And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. And this is one of the only times that Paul talks individually, personally. Normally he's talking about what Jesus has done for all of you and the church and all that kind of stuff. But he says here, who loved me? And Paul describes himself as the worst of sinners in other places. Now, I don't think he took a poll, but he's reflecting on what he's done who loved me and gave himself for me. This is Paul just preaching the gospel to his own soul. What's he going to glory in? What's he going to pursue? He's going to pursue someone who loved the worst of sinners and gave his life for him. In 2 Corinthians 11, we, fought, we find Paul's new resume what he now boasts in, and it's a list of beatings. It's a list of hardships that being an apostle has brought into his life. And most commentators feel that some of this took place in Damascus in those silent years as Paul sought to preach to the Jews and the Hellenists to be the hero of his people, to bring them all back to God and to get squarely rejected. And Paul says, I can't help but speculate about whether or not during this time, in those silent years, this time in the Apostle Paul's life, if the Holy Spirit uh, is working out in him the kind of faith that he describes in Philippians, the kind of faith uh, that, that lives Jesus. Not what faith in Jesus can be articulated like, but what it feels like to depend on Jesus, what it feels like, what it, what it ha- means to have confirmed in you and to see his work and his hand in your life and to see his work and his hand in the life of others. This is what Paul's writing about at the start of Philippians. What it feels like to have your heart warm with affection for God, deep joy, even when it's impossible to be happy. Paul is having his heart circumcised and cut and marked with the power and the presence of God. Now I wonder if the Holy Spirit is saying to him, Hey, hotshot, it isn't about your brilliance and your amazing conversion story and then taking all of that talent and just merely reapplying it to a different type of activity. Although Paul will go and do that. This is about learning to depend and glory in me. This is about learning that I must replace the resume of self-achievement. This is about learning that you don't just repent from all your immorality. You need to repent from all your self-righteousness and you need to find a righteousness that is in me. This is about what you worship. And at the end of Paul's new resume in 2 Corinthians, we find Paul writing about what he now boasts in. If I must boast, he says, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. Then Paul um, cites perhaps the most humbling moment in his life when he's being lowered over the, uh, the, over the Damascus wall, uh, fleeing and fearing for his life. 
as a picture of how God has cut his heart to depend on faith in Christ. Like he thought he was going to go into that town and preach up a storm and everybody would respond and yet he is finding himself being smuggled out of the city and lowered down a wall in a basket and fleeing for his life up to Jerusalem. Some of what warms Paul's heart for affection to God are his most weakest and vulnerable moments because there the Holy Spirit has taught him a new type of dependency, a new place to find security. It's what God was doing in the Apostle Paul, not what Paul thought that he would do for God that becomes Paul's deep joy and cause for rejoicing. Paul now counts his resume of distinguished ancestry, of accurate orthodoxy, of unparalleled training, of zealous activity and blameless morality as refuse. These were things that Paul sought acceptance in. But having encountered Jesus, not just in that event on the Damascus Road, but in the Arabian Desert, out the front of synagogues as whips tore open his flesh, hiding in a basket, fearing for his life, or reclining at the house of Lydia, eating the best food, sleeping in the best, most comfortable sheets, participating and partaking in, the, in serving Jesus with deep friends like Timothy and Silas. All of this is where the Holy Spirit tore open the flesh of Paul's heart to remake it into one that would glory in Jesus and rejoice in all things. I don't think Paul could have written this letter from Damascus. I think this letter comes from having worked out his faith. Like Paul says, work out your faith. He's had his own faith worked out. From his towering intellect, where he could, where he could confound the Jews and, and anyone he spoke to, he'd rip them apart in an argument. But now what rips people apart is the pastoral love, the presence of Jesus that just... Uh, characterizes the life of Paul. From a towering intellect to deep heart joy through the, the teaching of his heart to rejoice in all circumstances. It's not until you have encountered the power of Jesus' resurrection, the new life of the Spirit in your lowliness and in your loneliness. The power of Jesus' resurrection, this new transforming life of the Spirit in your triumphs, achievements, and ambitions it's not until they, all those things have been reshaped that you will have an unconquerable joy that rejoices in all situations. Maybe like Paul, you, I, need to remind ourselves that in the absence of environmental love, in the absence of, of environmental, relational affirmation, of realized ambitions, that Jesus has seen us to the very bottom. He's known us. He has known who we are. He has known who we were in a conversion, what we will do, how we will fail, uh, how we will triumph. And he has loved us and given his life for us. He has borne our sin. He's taken our guilt and he has replaced it with the power of his resurrection, new life in the spirit. Maybe you need to sit around with more Christian friends and delight in the stories of growth and grace. Like just talk about where Jesus has 
brought you to and from. Maybe you need to watch the sunset tonight and just marvel that the same power that painted that holds your heart in place. Maybe you need to meditate on God's word a little more and just let it soak in rather than just let it roll over the top of you. What is your testimony? Have you come to know Christ in the way Paul describes here? Do you just rejoice because you know him? How are you delighting and rejoicing in the Lord? You won't drift there, but you will be pulled there if your heart pursues relationships with Jesus over relationships with all other things. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you for your words here that we find in this letter to the Philippians. We pray now that we would be about the activity of nurturing our souls with a pursuit of you, with a relationship with you. Foster this in us, encourage us towards this end, we pray. We thank you for your goodness and your grace towards us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.